Hey guys, welcome to Thrive Bites Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Colin Zhu, and thank you so much for listening on. You could have been anywhere in the world and you decided to spend just a few moments of your precious time and we greatly appreciate it. Here on the podcast, we talk about three things, living a plant-powered lifestyle and enhancing emotional resilience and creating a thriving mindset. And I interview a range of passionate guests such as physicians, dietitians, coaches, entrepreneurs, and many more. And please join me as I deliver these engaging, informative, and high-valued conversations for you. And just remember the first five seasons of the Thrive Bites podcast can now be found in the new The Chef Doc app, available in your Apple Store and Google Play Stores. So what are you waiting for? Come on inside. Okay, guys. Well, welcome to another episode of Thrybots Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Colin Zhu, and thank you so much for being here with us. You could have been anywhere in the world, and you decided to spend just a precious few moments with us, and we are greatly, greatly, very appreciative of that. And um, I cannot wait to introduce our next guest. We had since you know taking a little bit of a break, but we are you know back at it. So our next guest is her name is Dr. Nicole Harkin. And she's a preventative cardiologist who's board certified in internal medicine, cardiology, echocardiography, nuclear cardiology, and clinical lipidology. I don't know how she has time for anything else. And after graduating from Boston University, magna cum laude, she attended Columbia uh, University for Internal Medicine, NYU, New York University for Cardiology uh, Fellowship. And she's the founder of uh, Whole Heart Cardiology, which is a preventative telecardiology practice, which is awesome, that provides cardiac uh, optimization through, through precision and lifestyle medicine for patients in California, New York, and Florida. Passionate about preventing and treating heart disease through helpful and sustainable lifestyle changes. So I can't wait to uh, get into it. So please welcome Dr. Harkin. Hello. Hi. (laughs) Thank you so much for that warm introduction. And I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm uh, super, super stoked for you to be here. Thank you so, so much for the time that, you know, spending out your busy practice. How are you doing today and where are you calling from? Uh, Doing very well. I'm calling from my home actually in Tiburon, which is in Marin, just northern part of San Francisco. And my practice is in San Francisco. So I'm in the Bay Area. It's sunny and beautiful here today. I know for uh, California, I don't know if through your side, you know, we've been getting a lot of torrential floods. So did SF get, uh, you know, the Bay Area get hit as just yeah. as well? Yeah, absolutely. The Bay did. Um, definitely in Santa Cruz and other parts of, of Northern California got hit pretty hard as well. We did okay here, but it was one of those things where everyone in California was like, we need the rain, but wait, this is like a lot. (laughs) But we're back to normal now. What was fascinating was that, you know, and I'll move away from weather really quick, is that California, uh, for whatever reason, when it came down, which is basically three weeks, a whole year of rain in like three weeks, they couldn't figure out how to capture it. And I was like blown away. I was like, how did you not figure out, you know, we're always in drought, right? So it's like, you know, (laughs) so... Anyway, so thank you so much for coming on. So we're in the month of February at the time of this recording, and it's very poignant. You know, I think it's poignant 
all the time, right? Because in the United States, it's our number one killer, getting close to around 700,000, you know, deaths per year, which was interesting because, you know, when they keep flashing the COVID statistics, you know, back in 2020, and I'm just like, why can't they flash heart disease statistics every single time they have breaking news? You know, everything is breaking news nowadays, right? And, you know, heart disease is our number one killer. And there's been a proclamation from President Biden's desk that it's American, you know, heart month and uh, very poignant. And I love the fact that you do preventative, you know, cardiology. So before we get into the quote unquote, I don't want to say meat, but, you know, the nuts and bolts of things, right? You know, how let's talk about your origin story, right? Everyone likes a good superhero story, right? Or superheroine in this case, right? Where, you know, how did you go from, you know, where you were to preventive, you know, uh, cardiology? How did you stumble, you know, upon it? If you stumble, you stumble gracefully, gracefully, so. gracefully, very much so. Yeah, I'm definitely not a superhero, but yeah. So my story, no one's a doctor in my family. Um, my mom's a teacher. My dad's a lawyer. I, um, but I was always very interested in science. I actually went to an all girls high school and really like loved my biology class. And that was kind of what started my science journey. And then just, but realized I wasn't, I did a couple stints in the lab and that was not really my thing. It's so, so important, but bench research is not for me. Um, so realized I was much more of a clinician and that's when I just really um, got very interested in medicine and just the thought of being able to heal and help people was just, I mean, I think what most of us write on our essays when we're trying to get into medical school, but that's really what, what kind of drew me into to medicine and, um, and then cardiology in particular, I was actually really interested in um, doing infectious disease. And I did a lot of work abroad. Um, and that was sort of where I thought I was going. And then really actually started to, it was when I was in Africa and we were doing a lot of work with patients who had TB and HIV and AIDS. But also I was totally shocked to see that so many people also, we were diagnosing with, you know, really resistant, severe hypertension, cardiomyopathy, lots of heart disease. And it really was that then when it hit me that despite all of these other sort of conditions that we sort of think of as being very important globally, which, which they are, despite that, cardiovascular disease is the number one cause of death globally in men, women, et cetera. I mean, any population you want to break it down really. And so just kind of had this realization moment that potentially could have the biggest impact um, really going into to cardiology. It's also really interesting. It's, it's like the physiology behind it is really fascinating. And so, and so that's kind of how I ended up in, in my cardiology trajectory. And then prevention in particular, again, kind of coming from that background of more of a public health sort of way of thinking. And I actually in fellowship presented, that was when the PREDIMED trial, the very famous um, for your listeners, Mediterranean trial came out. And I remember presenting that at Journal Club. That was the, what I had picked. And just everyone, you know, some of the greatest minds in cardiology being like, wow, that's crazy. <laughs> that's such big impact. And I was like, yeah, duh, you know, and so and so that's when I kind of really decided, you know, the prevention is huge, not enough people, even cardiologists, you know, focus on it, know enough about it. And that was kind of really snowballed and found lots of great mentors and 
And here I am. So number one, that's awesome. You know, you also specialize in, you know, lifestyle medicine. And so was it something that I always believe that lifestyle medicine is a profession of accountability and just showing up and being the living example for our patients and community? Did you personally have any type of like health challenges or any family, you know, members that, you know, kind of further inspired you, you know, towards more of a preventive cardiology route? Yeah, so definitely heart disease runs in my family, um, certainly. And so having, you know, had lots of conversations with all of my family members about, you know, the things that we can do to prevent heart health. Actually, autoimmune disease uh, runs in my family as well. And I personally have Raynaud's and psoriasis and all that stuff, um, which we can get into. But uh, autoimmune diseases are certainly an increasing realizing that that is a uh, risk factor for cardiovascular disease as well. And so... Uh, so some of that, I think, definitely shaped and framed how I've seen and, and thought about prevention and heart disease and, and things like that, um, certainly. Yeah. And, um, you know, a lot of things, and we can talk about this all day, the physiology, you know, behind it. And when you get down to it, it's not as simple as, oh, you have high cholesterol, you know, and that's it. There's so many different things, you know, like talking about, you know, inflammatory markers and oxidative stress and lack of fiber and then the emerging, you know, science and evidence from, you know, just having a more healthful microbiome. So, so many things, you know, into play in the world of, you know, when you were coming up and, you know, this pre-med study that you reference, why do you think, you know, doctors are just not knowing enough about nutrition and lifestyle? Is it, do you think it's a fault of medical schools, you know, over time, or is it, you know, what is, what is it, you know, in your opinion? Yeah, that's a great question. So I actually did for my fellowship research project, I actually looked at this question. Incidentally enough, you didn't know that, but um, but I did. And so I do have a little bit of data, but I also think just, you know, thinking about it from someone who's gone through our training, and I'd be curious to hear what you have to say as well. But I think certainly many of us who are focused a lot on lifestyle medicine and our practices have much of that knowledge was not learned in medical school, right? I think most of us have done whether, you know, we were now board certified or have just gone to the various conferences and all of the sought out different mentors and things like that. I mean, personally, I think all of my learnings have been frankly, not even in my cardiology fellowship, other than a, a couple of bits here and there that I had to personally piece together. And so, you know, certainly I think our, our system for better or for worse is very much set up to learn how to treat disease, um, not prevent it. And, you know, I learned a lot more about how to run ECMO and VADS and all of this in my, my cardiology training rather than, you know, prevention um, and lifestyle. And so I do think it's, it's uh, unfortunately, that's kind of where our training has been. And I don't think it's though, I, at least from the research that I did, looking at residents and fellows and attendings in, at my program where I trained um, both in the internal medicine department and the cardiology department, it's not because we don't want to know about it. So what we did is we tested um, them. We actually gave them nutrition questions and, and asked mm -hmm, them. Mm -hmm. um, so we did test their knowledge, which actually, frankly, was not that bad. People had a, a, a decent sense about, you know, soluble fiber. What is it? I mean, I was actually pretty surprised. They, they knew a decent amount. But when you ask them how comfortable they felt counseling their patients, they were mm -hmm. not at all 
comfortable. And, you know, in terms of figuring out what the biggest barriers were, a lot of it's knowledge and not feeling comfortable, not feeling like you knew how to kind of frame those questions and how to fit it in. Um, So kind of the motivational interviewing piece and all that stuff. And then time, not having any time to do it. And so I think it's a combination Mm. of sort of the, our training, but then also the realities of insurance model and, and how much time people have with their patients and how many medical problems that they have to try to figure out how to solve and fix in a 10 minute visit. So I think it's a lot of those things. I'd be curious what your thoughts are. Yeah. I mean, for me, you know, at the time, um, and I went to a really good medical school, you know, I only had like 10 credit hours of, uh, it was mainly, you know, just biochemistry, you know, for nutrition. And it w- didn't teach me anything about food, where it came from, the pillars of what we, you know, now know is, you know, or have a name to it, you know, in terms of lifestyle medicine. A lot of surveys show that uh, less than a quarter of, you know, medical schools, you know, re- actually require it. I think since uh, we've done a much better job, you know, especially with the ad events and of uh, American College of Lifestyle Medicine pushing the envelope forward in terms Mm -hmm. of free CMEs, you know, a huge push of medical school and residency curricula and, you know, further partnerships like the White House, which we're going to talk about in in a second. So very, very exciting. And I think it's a blessing at the same time to answer your question, because if I didn't have that paucity, I wouldn't have taken a lot of detours. I wouldn't have taken so many like just side roads, you know, to kind of come to this point, you know, to create a podcast. Like, you know, we were just talking Talking offline, you know, social media training, podcasting, writing books, like this was built, you know, building a practice. This was never in the works, you know. We just wanted to go to school, and school was just like pharmacology, pathophysiology, and like that was basically it. That was like 99% and passing your boards. And so I'm really, you know, grateful that it did have the paucity, or else we wouldn't have taken these uh, different routes, wouldn't you say? Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. I think there's certainly been those of us who are out there sort of working out outside the box or the envelope or whatever it is, and trying to kind of create a, a place for us ourselves in medicine that is providing value. And, and I know that people want it because I have just been, as we were talking about earlier, like just blown away by the fact that how many people out there are seeking this out, right? And so when I first started doing, you know, social media and Instagram and stuff like that, I was like, oh, I don't know. No one's going to really want to learn about this stuff. It's kind of like for older people, right? <laughs> old people. It's right, not right. my I'm going to talk about that. But like, I was like, there, who's going to want to hear about this stuff? And I've just been like blown away by the response that people are so interested. I get messages literally every day about how valuable the content is, how much they've learned, how much they've changed how they eat and how they think about stuff. They've asked their doctor certain questions. Like, it's just really exciting that now more than ever, there are these avenues for those of us who do want to try to like, you know, do something a little bit different. And and I am, I agree. I'm so heartened by the fact that more and more medical schools are including nutrition or including lifestyle and all of that stuff is, is it's finding its way into the, the medical literature because I get, I mean, it breaks my heart. I get messages again every day, you know, can you be my doctor? I, I really love that you talk about not just medications, but lifestyle right, right. and of that like middle in between you do 
do both things. You know, patients are hungry for learning about how they can use lifestyle to prevent and treat diseases. And it's not the magic bullet for everyone. You know, we, we need to use, you know, medications in our, our practices as well when we need them, but 80% of heart disease is preventable, you know, and people are learning that they're hearing that they want to do something about it and they're motivated and they're looking for partners to help them do that. And so the more of us that are out there, I'm just so glad that more and more uh, doctors are, are learning about this and going into this and either in their training or the ACLM, you know, and doing it later, there's going to be a whole I, I feel like this next generation, we've got a lot of doctors that are going to be doing lifestyle medicine. It's going to be awesome. It's going to yeah. be awesome, Nicole. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I, I already feel like the energy and passion, you know, so it's great. My next question to you is, you know, and, and also to add to your comment about, you know, the social media is because we live in a world of oversaturation of misinformation and everyone supposedly is a health expert. So I love what you do because you're lending your own individual voice to be able to kind of combat, you know, this, you know, so, so thank you. So my next question to you is that we know that heart disease is our number one killer. My question is, when did it start becoming our number one killer, you know, and from your lens, is it, you know, preventable and reversible? Great questions. So cardiovascular disease in terms of its cause as the number one cause of death and disability in this country. And as we've said, globally, the traje trajectory has been interesting in for many, many decades was on its way down, actually, in terms of so even though it is our number one killer, um, because of modern medicine, and an increasing awareness of, of sort of the causes of cardiovascular disease and risk reduction strategies, we have been able to start to decrease the the, the rates of death. And so those trajectories were, were pretty consistent year over year for, for many, many years. And actually, unfortunately, the last couple of years, um, we've actually seen a stagnation in that. And then actually in some populations, particularly young people and young women, we are seeing that, that those numbers are starting to climb up again and increasing. And unfortunately, that's because of increasing rates of several risk factors, diabetes, insulin resistance, increased adiposity being uh, top of the list. Smoking is starting to make a comeback in some populations. So, so certainly, you know, we're starting to see those rates. I mean, I think one stat that always shocks me is that cardiovascular disease is the number one cause of death and new moms. And, and, and that's mm. just you know, very, very sobering. So, to, and then in terms of, is it preventable and reversible? As we said, you know, 80% of all heart disease is preventable. And that's really focused on just kind of some of the basic tenets of sort of lifestyle management in terms of managing cholesterol and blood pressure, um, maintaining an active lifestyle, a heart healthy diet, which I'm sure we'll get into the details of that, not smoking, maintaining a healthy body weight, those sorts of things. So, and I think really also, something I'd like to make sure that I mention is that those healthy habits don't apply uh, or apply to all of us, regardless of our baseline risk. And I get this question a lot for my patients who have a strong family history. You know, I hear a lot of, well, it's in, runs in my family. It's sort of just destiny. Um, and we actually have good data to show that it's, it's not. And so it doesn't mean that we can prevent everything, but 
you know, there's research to show that in individuals who adhere to even just three out of the four of those kind of lifestyle changes can reduce their risk of or is associated with a reduced risk of cardiovascular disease by like 50%. So genes are important, um, but they're not necessarily everything. And we can do a lot to sort of modify it with these lifestyle habits. Um, So I really firmly believe in making sure people know that yes, it, it can be preventable with a lot of these things. And, and that, you know, it's important to kind of focus on, on all these different details, but also, and I want to always give this clarifying statement that um, for certain people, you know, there is a role certainly for medications and things like that. Familial hyperlipidemia is a great example, those sorts of conditions. So I just want to always make sure I give a shout out to that because I've had some people be like, but that's not me. Am I doing it wrong? I'm feeling no. Um, you know, there are certain genetic conditions where, you know, uh, lifestyle can't get us to to our goals usually. It's very sobering, especially the different types of populations. I'm just, you know, for me, I I want to continue to emphasize to people that, you know, it's it's the food, it's the lifestyle, it's the environment. It's so many different things that, you know, weigh into it. So it's not uh, just one singular variable or component. We have to kind of look at, you know, the greater uh, scale uh, with everything. You know, going off of that, you know, why do you think it's still the number one, you know, cause of death? Is it something in, you know, this perpetual food industry that we have? Is it the environment? Is there some missing variable that we're missing? And then my other question is, it, can you highlight, you know, for the audience, a couple of references or studies to answer the question, you know, is it reversible? Because, you know, going off of the medical destiny part of it, you do get a lot of that, you know, it's almost like a death sentence. It's almost something that, oh, well, you know, I can't really do anything about it, you know, and that kind of, you know, it, it, in a way, it it's a sense of losing control. And, you know, no matter what I do, it's going to be inevitable um, anyway. So if you can share a couple of points. Yeah, I mean, I think over time, certainly the different risk factors have increased or decreased variably and have become more or less important over time. But certainly I would, you know, modern lifestyle does not lend itself well to providing adequate amounts of movement and does not allow for a the most nutritious like profile, unfortunately. Um, I, I certainly think that it's going to take a big multifaceted effort to figure out our food system and how to help better incentives for the foods that are really, really helpful and nutritious and fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, seeds, legumes, et cetera, and less of the the processed foods and things like that. And so, so certainly I think that there is widely and cheaply available processed foods and, and, you know, public policies does not do anything to unfortunately make that better. And so I think that's a big part of it. Um, Certainly we're all very, very busy and find a hard, it's very difficult to find the, the amount of time that you need to, to really move your body. Uh, we recommend moving your body at least 150 to 300 minutes of moderate intensity exercise a week. That's a lot for, for some people to be able to try to fit in with all of the other pressures, including work and children and, you know, everything else there is to do. So certainly, you know, trying to, you know, figure out spaces and times and ways that people can do this and fit it into their lifestyles. It's tough. And so I, so certainly I think that the, the different risk factors, whether it's been smoking, which, you know, historically was a big problem and has now started to come down. And now we're seeing rates of, of diabetes and insulin resistance and 
and obesity going up. And so we have these different, you know, different risks that become more important or less important over time, but, but tend to persist because of our lifestyle, unfortunately. A quick question when you said smoking, you know, with the advent of vaping, you yeah. know, nowadays, have you, has there any studies that, you know, you know, that you've seen over time? Because it's a relatively new thing when, you know, we don't have anything really, really long-term. What is your opinion about vaping? Is it a quote unquote, good stepping stone in terms of quitting smoking or should people just not even, you know, bother at all? So of the data that's available, as you said, we don't have a lot of long-term studies yet, but of the data that we do have available, it suggests that it is certainly a better, a less of a risk when it comes to cardiovascular disease and uh, carcinogenic potential than cigarettes. Certainly that said, there's still combustible products in these things. And we don't totally fully understand what a lot of them do when you light them up and inhale them, probably not good things. And so, so certainly I don't advise people to vape. I usually, if I have patients who are interested in smoking cessation and they're at that place in their journey, we talk about a lot of other things before we talk about vaping usually. For those who have sort of found that on their own and they're no longer smoking cigarettes, I think that's it's better than cigarettes, but certainly the conversation of, okay, now what should always be kind of in the forefront if possible and, and trying to kind of move off of that as well. In terms of the reversibility, you know, can you share a couple of points? Because a lot of people don't know whether heart disease is reversible. You know, is it just a death sentence? Is it something inevitable? No. So we, so we have a lot of different types of trials that we can look at when we look at heart disease and reversibility. And it, so it sort of depends depends on what you're defining as reversible. As a cardiologist, I focus not necessarily on a specific lesion going from say like 40% to 20%, right? Which I think is what a lot of people think of when they think of reversibility. For me, I'm more focused on can we do things to help you not ever have a heart attack or have angina or any heart outcome? To me, that is reversibility, right? Because you're not, you're, you're preventing the bad outcome, right? And so, so I focus on that a lot. And that's, and when I talk to my patients about that, they're like, oh yeah. I'm like, do you care that your lesion went from 40% to 20%? Do you care about that? And they're like, uh, I'm like, you won't know it, right? What you want to make sure you're doing is you're, you're not having a heart attack. You're not having symptoms that limit your ability to, to do things that you want to do day to day, et cetera, et cetera. So we have huge, massive trials showing that you can certainly do that um, and do it well with lifestyle as well as goal-directed med medical therapy. Um, so from, uh, you know, courage to ischemia, all these big, big trials that show that we can prevent heart attacks and heart events in people um, with treatment. And so I focus a, a, and, and not necessarily using stents and, and bypass surgery um, unless, you know, people are having- Unless absolutely necessary, yeah. Exactly. Certain anatomic reasons, et cetera, et cetera. So those are, I think those, I start with some of those trials in terms of what we can do. And then I think you can further hone in on different, you know, specific lifestyle and diet trials where we've looked at things like we mentioned, um, even PrediMet earlier, which is a, for your listeners, a diet that focused on individuals who were high risk for heart disease, but didn't have established heart disease and placed them on either at the time, the American Heart Association's low fat dietary recommendations 
medications versus a very plant forward. I mean, if you ended up looking at it, it was very plant forward Mediterranean diet. And and we found that they reduced their risk of, of stroke and heart attack by around 30%. And then if you look at the analyses thereafter, looking at uh, quintiles of, of plant-based adherence in that patient population, you found that the patients that actually adhered to had the most plants in their diet and the least animal products um, fared the best. So, um, so I love looking at some of those types of larger trials. And then certainly we have some of, of the smaller trials with Dean Ornish and, and, and all of those, you know, luminaries within cardiology and the plant-based community. Esselstyn. Yeah. Esselstyn, exactly. And looking at, you know, some of their outcomes in terms of reductions in angina and, and, and such. And then, and then we didn't even mention all of the different, um, you know, population based trials and all of these things. So there is just an abundance of data so, out there in yeah. terms of looking at cardiovascular endpoints and, and, and lifestyle and, and such showing that, you know, with true cardiac optimization, and again, with our continued, really our continued understanding of what that means, um, we can reduce risks significantly. Um, so we, so getting, having coronary disease, getting coronary to calcium score with calcium on it, et cetera, et cetera, that does not mean um, that you will inevitably have a heart attack or have angina. You can do something about it, certainly. Yeah, for sure. Hey guys, we're going to be taking a short break, but don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Hey guys, welcome to the Chef Doc app. I am so, so excited for you to be here with us. This has been such a remarkable miracle is probably the best way that I can say it. The whole premise of this, you're probably wondering why I created the Chef Doc app. Um, it's a very good question. I've been enthralled with really, really impacting and inspiring as many people as I can um, to be able to thrive. I've made a lot of things and created a lot of content over the years. However, it just made a lot of sense to put it all under one roof. And so what you will find is a collection of many, many types of offerings, many different types of programs from Whole Food Plant-Based Essentials 101 to the whole Thrive Bites podcast archive, five seasons, 150 episodes, to the Thrive Formula, which is a 50-plus on-demand evergreen masterclass series interviewing so many different types of wellness experts on learning how to thrive. And my Thrive Medicine 21 Day Challenge, plus many, many, many more coming soon. So stay tuned for that. So there are many ways to be able to access this content. One is there are free lessons for you to try out, see what we have here. We have something for everyone. We have audio content, we have video content, we have quizzes. We also have a community feature where you could also uh, talk to other uh, members of the Chef Doc app to be able to engage in discussion, share with others what it means on how we can continue to thrive in our own lives. And you can also upgrade whether you want to 
buy things one off. You can buy programs and content one off. Or if you want to join us on a monthly membership subscription plan where you could have exclusive access to all of the content, plus also Q&As where I answer your burning questions on anything from plant-based lifestyle to physical activity to how do I improve my mental and emotional resilience to, you know, how do I foster better relationships and community and to just the nuances of how to use this app and what is whole food plant-based lifestyle and etc. Thank you so much for coming in and please, if you have any questions, uh, please feel free to email us in the description below and I'll see you inside. Welcome back to Thrive Bites. Let's get back to the interview. I kind of like, I like using analogies. So like, I, you know, and I like using car analogies. So it's, it's kind of like you could have the best insurance, right? You can have the best car, you can have the best, you know, rating, you know, safety profile, but it doesn't hundred percent guarantee that you're not going to you know, come across a car accident, you know, but you know, this is where why I love lifestyle medicine so much, because it's more of a proactive, you know, profession, proactive standpoint and approach as opposed to a reactive, you know, approach, which is, you know, I think what modern healthcare is, you know, um, it's already arrived, you know, what are we going to do about it? And, you know, like you said, not as focused on the preventative, you know, side of it. So my next question is, you know, since it's American Heart Month, what would you recommend in terms of, you know, prevention? We did talk about this a little bit uh, scattered through our previous points, but you know, what is it that we need to understand? Is it something as simple as, you know, we need to continuously overemphasize the basics or is there something, you know, uh, else that we need to know? In terms of cardiovascular prevention, I think definitely understanding the, going back to the pathophysiology of heart disease, like why does that develop? I think it's really important kind of to walk through like what is our disease? How does it happen? So then we can kind of better understand what it is that we need to do to prevent it. And so, you know, heart disease or atherosclerosis is the causative mechanism is really these particles that are in our bloodstream called lipoproteins and they carry cholesterol in them and they deposit into the arteries of our heart, our brain everywhere, right? And so the the higher the number of those, the higher your atherogenic burden, if you will, the higher likelihood that they will deposit into our arteries. So one of the first things to really look at in terms of cardiovascular prevention is definitely cholesterol and lipids. And um, we could talk about the different ways in which we can measure those and what's better than the other, whether you're measuring, you know, LDL cholesterol, as we've traditionally done, or if you're looking at ApoB, which we're increasingly doing, all of those ways are, are reasonably good markers of how high is your atherogenic burden, how much cholesterol um, can deposit into the arteries. And then we can look at things like inflammation, you know, so, so there, so you've got the cholesterol that deposits into the artery. Okay. Well, what increases likelihood that it will deposit? Well, more particles, but also if that barrier, the, the lumen barrier, the endothelium isn't working so well. And so things that can damage that are things like inflammation, um, hypertension, um, you know, 
issues related to, to insulin resistance and glucose control. So you can start to kind of understand better how all these things can contribute to cardiovascular disease. And then when you start to think about, um, you know, stepping out further, okay, how do we prevent those things? So you can look at these isolated risk factors, or you can also take that approach where you look at what are the all encompassing lifestyle changes that you can make that will really hit and target all of those things. So it sort of depends on if my patient comes into me with a specific, you know, concern like cholesterol, you know, we talk a lot about prevention there. And there are some nuances, I will say, in terms of when you're looking at, you know, dietary therapy for say cholesterol versus hypertension, there are going to be different things that you potentially might focus on at first um, in the kind of that immediate um, concern. But I think certainly thinking about, you know, how to put together a lifestyle plan for someone with these concerns is is definitely going to hit on all the major points um, like nutrition and exercise and smoking cessation and weight reduction if indicated and all those things. But, um, you know, in a, in a very like targeted way, if that makes sense. Yes, yes, yes. And I definitely want to emphasize for our audience listeners that Everyone, you know, when we see patients, it's a very individualized, customized, you know, healthcare plan. So definitely consult with your uh, healthcare professional before uh, implementing any of this. In terms of my next question, you know, we talked about cholesterol. My first, you know, question is, you know, is all cholesterol evil? Because we tend to vilify cholesterol through popular media, social media, you know, just over decades, right? You know, is all cholesterol bad, right? And after that, well, let me let me ask that question first, and then we'll go into the next question. So cholesterol is bad if it deposits in your arteries. That's where you don't want it. I think the key point to understand is cholesterol in and of itself is not a bad thing, right? We need it to make hormones and vitamins and things like that. But interestingly enough, we do not need to consume cholesterol. Our, each, all the cell types make enough for their cell membranes and all the things that they need to do. So we don't need to consume it. We don't need to worry about making sure we're getting enough of it. That's for sure. And in terms of this good versus bad um, dichotomy, I think it's it's funny how, and it's okay to kind of think about it like that, but it's important to actually know that cholesterol in your LDL particles and your HDL particles is the same thing. It's just cholesterol. Um, and we call it good versus bad based on the lipoprotein, the little vehicle that is transporting it. So if that vehicle is tagged as an LDL particle or a VLDL remnant or an lipoprotein little a, um, which is a genetically inherited version. These are the types of lipoproteins that carry cholesterol that tends to deposit into our arteries. So we can think of those as the bad ones. And then there's the HDL cholesterols. Those also contain cholesterol, same substance, but it tends to uh, conduct reverse cholesterol transport, which means it removes it from the periphery back to our liver for excretion. And so that's kind of how that those labels have been created. And so it's not totally wrong to think about it like that, but it's a little bit more, more nuanced. And just an important point on HDL, we focused on that for many years about, you know, how can we get it up and it's the good guys and all this stuff. And I think that's part of, you know, this, this, how we, the nomenclature of the good and the bad, how we got so fixated on it. And, you know, important to note, we've yet to find a medication that raises it, that actually improves cardiovascular outcomes. So we're not really focused on that as much anymore, but, and it really turns out it's probably much more about your HDL's functionality, something called its 
efflux capacity, its ability to do its job, rather than the amount of cholesterol contained within the HDL particle, which is what you're measuring when you get that standard lipid panel back and it says HDL cholesterol. So um, with my patients, I don't focus a lot on HDL um, raising, if you will. Although that said, not smoking, maintaining a healthy body weight and exercise are the best ways to raise it if you so wish to do so. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I think it's important to differentiate that because, you know, kind of like when we're talking about and educating about whole food plant-based, you know, we don't want to chase numbers. You know, we don't want to tell people to count calories and, you know, be so, you know, laser focused on what are the ratios and percentages of, you know, carbs of fat to protein. And when it becomes super nuanced um, and meticulous like that, then we just kind of lose the, you know, bigger picture because at the end of the day, we want to be able to lower our chronic inflammatory burden. So similarly here, you know, as, you know, uh, a primary care physician, internist, family uh, medicine practitioners, uh, pediatrics, the standard lipid panel is something that we utilize a lot. So you've touched upon this, you started to touch upon this um, already. What do we need to know in terms of deciphering, you know, the standard lipid panel? And how is that different from, you know, the advanced lipid panel? And, you know, is it is the advanced lipid panel necessary all the time? Or just some of the, you know, components or none of it at all? Yeah, great question. So uh, the standard lipid panel for both patients and providers, it's the, it contains the total cholesterol, the LDL cholesterol, the HDL cholesterol, and the triglycerides. And so as we've sort of touched on those cholesterol numbers, and it's important to note that LDL cholesterol is calculated um, using the Friedwald equation from the total cholesterol, the HDL, and the triglycerides. Um, so it is a calculated number. Um, and so it's subject to a couple of different limitations, if you will. So getting those numbers is a great first step, right? It gives you a good overall picture of what's going on um, with someone in terms of their risk due to cholesterol issues or, um, and lipids. And so, um, so we've sort of touched upon kind of the different components, the LDL cholesterol being um, measuring, again, the cholesterol that's contained within the LDL particles. I emphasize that because it's important in that it, it, um, it's, you're, you're actually counting the amount of cholesterol that's in these LDL particles. You're not actually measuring the number of particles. That's not what that reflects. The HDL is counting again, how much cholesterol is in these HDL particles. And then the triglycerides, which I guess maybe we should touch on separately. So the LDL particles, the distinction kind of in terms of when people are getting these advanced lipid panels, they were really popular for a while. And essentially what it does is it's, it's actually count, helping you to figure out the quantity as well as the size of these particles. And that's sort of its main advantage. For a decent amount of the population, there's there's not a whole lot of value added in that. We used to think that the, the smaller the particle, the really, really small particles were more atherogenic as opposed to the large fluffy ones because they could get into the endothelium better. Turns out they also um, efflux out of the endothelium better. So it's kind of, it, it's not so much the size we're starting to realize, it's actually really the quantity, the number of particles. Mm -hmm. right? And for a decent amount of us up to, it depends what numbers you're looking at, but insulin resistance could be as much as 50% of the adult population, depending on what you're looking at. So in certain populations, specifically those who have insulin resistance, diabetes, um, 
excess adiposity, um, we actually tend to see some, some, uh, something called discordance. And that's when the LDL cholesterol will actually not look that bad, yet the number of particles is higher than you would anticipate. So say we take two individuals, their LDL cholesterol is 100. Person A has that contained within 10, you know, large fluffy ones, particles. Person B has that contained within 20 small particles. The person, person B, their ApoB or their number of particles is larger, right? So it, and it, and in, in those situations, when you've got this discordance, it actually turns out that the atherogenic burden is much more reflective, obviously, on, the, on by counting the particles, but actually that correlates with cardiovascular risk. And so that LDL cholesterol of 100 doesn't look so bad, but if it has, if they have a ton, a ton of particles, the risk of cardiovascular disease is much more reflective by when you count those things. So you can count the particles in a number of different ways. So you can either do that advanced lipid panel, and that'll give you the LDL particle number. Um, so you can do that. You can also do something called apolipoprotein B. And you can actually, for any practitioners listening, a, the lip, you can do a standard lipid panel. I think both Quest and LabCorp now, you can do plus ApoB. It's like a separate mm-hmm. thing. So you can get those mm-hmm. together. So I would say definitely in people who you're concerned, maybe have any of these risks, definitely people who have triglycerides on the higher side, for sure. That's another reason we see artificially low LDLs. It's a great thing to get, particularly if you think their LDL is sort of at goal, you'll be surprised their ApoB might not be. And then you want to target that ApoB. That's what you want to get down. So that's when I find that advanced lipid panel can be very helpful, but you can also accomplish that with ApoB. You can also accomplish that by calculating the the non-HDL too. That sort of gives you a similar sort of look at that. The other thing that's in the advanced lipid panel, I know I love this stuff, so I'm talking a lot about it. So I want to make sure- No, 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 keep going. I love it. We're geeking out. Go ahead. (laughs) So I want to make sure we get to it all. So lipoprotein little eight, that's the other thing that's in this advanced lipid panel. You can order it separately. It's another important marker. I follow the European guidelines and that every person should have it checked once in their lifetime. Why? Because it is a one in five individuals will have an elevated LP little a, and it is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. Very similar to LDL. Lipoprotein little a particles are like, um, they're very structurally similar to LDL particles, except they've got a little lay on them as well. And they increase the risk of cardiovascular disease by twofold. They increase the risk of aortic stenosis by two to fourfold. And so it's definitely an important sort of marker to look at by and large genetically determined, which is why you kind of only need to check it once. You don't need to keep checking it. If it's high, it's high. If it's low, it's low. It's not going to really change much. It does market, it does mildly increase in postmenopausal women. That's about it. Unfortunately, not very responsive to diet at all, which is a bummer, but it, but is a, a good marker to kind of know about. So that's the other thing you'll get in that advanced lipid panel. Um, But again, you can order that separately. A lot of the advanced lipid panels will come with that high sensitivity CRP as well. Um, Another marker I like to look at, but again, you can order that that separately if you want. And sort of as we touched on inflammation, we're increasingly realizing is a really important um, marker. And we've seen in lots of studies that even, you know, you look at individuals who've had a heart attack before, and they're on, uh, you know, appropriate medical and nutritional therapy, and their high sensitivity CRP is um, greater than two, they still have a, a, a pretty unfortunately high risk of cardiovascular disease compared to those that are below two and and their risk is much lower. So of a recurrent event. So that's another marker that that you can look at both in the primary and the secondary population. But again, that could be ordered separately. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm sure we can talk about we're gonna have like five episodes just breaking <laughs> down the components of you know the basic and the advanced uh, lipid panel. I remember when it first came out. Oof, this brings a few years ago during. I think it was probably even pre-med. I started following a lot of functional and integrative docs. And what is that company called? Boston. Is it Boston? Boston Heart. Boston Heart. Yeah. They were the big ones to like promote it. And I remember getting their uber colorful packets and I was just like, what is this? And yeah, it's um my question to this, and this actually is a good you know, segue to the next question is how does one eat, you know, for heart health? You know, given the advance, right, and we're looking at, you know, like you said, you know, not that much value overall, right? But, you know, you're talking about these different components. From a dietary standpoint, does it change much in terms of a preventative cardiology standpoint if we're already teaching and educating from a whole food plant base, right? If you're finding these markers with this advance, right? If for the practitioners that are listening, does it change a lot, you know, in terms of what you are already um, encouraging for your patient population? Yeah, certainly. I think so definitely discovering. So LP little a is a good example of a, of a test where unfortunately we don't have a lot of therapies to offer individuals to lower that. As I said, diet isn't particularly responsive to it. And we don't currently have a medication. They're in the pipeline, but we don't currently have a medication that we can prescribe to specifically lower LP little a. But it does change how I think about that individual's overall risk. So from a cardiovascular, from a coronary artery, disease risk, I certainly am much more aggressive about wanting their LDL cholesterol to be lower. And how I explain that to them is I'm interested, I can't do anything about these LP little a particles floating around in your bloodstream and depositing cholesterol into the arteries. What I can do something about is those LDL particles, because they're also floating around and trying to cause plaque. And so I'm focused on lowering your overall atherogenic burden, if you will. So that's, that's, so if I know that someone has an elevated LP little a, we do think about them a little bit differently in terms of our goals of therapy. They also have an increased risk of aortic stenosis, as I mentioned. So we keep an eye on that. Uh, cascade screening becomes important. So you want to make sure that they know first degree relatives should be also tested for it. Um, so there are things like that, that that we do tend to do differently. Um, Inflammation is another good, good um, thing where we can kind of talk about, as I said, you know, within the context of a whole food plant-based diet, there are different things that you can emphasize and really, you know, want to hone in on if you're really working on someone's inflammation versus blood pressure versus cholesterol, right? So for cholesterol, I'm hitting hard on soluble fiber, soluble fiber, soluble fiber, lots of soy products, you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so kind of following a uh, portfolio diet, a style diet um, within the whole food plant-based context versus, you know, is someone we're working on with hypertension, say, I'm focused more on um, potentially their alcohol and sodium and processed foods and and getting in that aerobic and resistance training. And, you know, so it's different sort of, because one person can only do so much, right? And so um, depending on their individual goals, you're sort of crafting and creating these plans that make the most sense for, for their particular risk factors that are above and beyond. And then, you know, sort of same, so LP little a definitely within that, that advanced lipid panel changes things. And then certainly for the individuals, if you're, if you see that their atherogenic burden is out of proportion to what you would have expected from their LDL cholesterol, you're certainly kind of taking a second look for insulin resistance or something like that that's that's maybe hiding there. Awesome. In terms of, you know, 
taking out, minimizing, avoiding is, you know, some of the stuff we touched upon. In terms of foods, you know, are there particular foods within the plant kingdom uh, kingdom that you would emphasize more of, you know, from a car- cardiology uh, standpoint in terms of, you know, lowering, you know, the, you know, the cholesterol you touched upon, soluble fiber, you know, number one, what is that, right? And where do we get it? So soluble fiber. So fiber is a, um, hopefully most of your listeners have heard of fiber before, I'm sure. They're in, it's in plant foods and it's not. It's What's that? It's Metamuso. <laughs> totally, it is. Um, luckily, we cannot, not just Metamucil now these days, but yes, actually, a lot of my patients like to just get it, you know, make sure they're getting some. I'm like, okay. Um, no, so not a, it's a non-digestible carb and plants have two kinds of fiber. There's soluble fiber and insoluble fiber. There's some overlap in terms of what they do, but for, to keep it really simple, I say insoluble fiber helps you poop and soluble fiber helps lower your glucose and your uh, cholesterol. There's some overlap, but, but essentially you can break down like that. So, um, but they're both great. And you know, different plant foods have variable amounts of fiber in them um, and variable amounts of insoluble and soluble. It's always a mixture, but some definitely have more soluble fiber than others. And so soluble fiber, essentially what it, it can do is it helps bind to actually our bile salts. Our bile salts are our body's way of trying to recycle our cholesterol. So if it binds to it, you can't reabsorb it and you just poop it out. And then the body try, and then the body pulls more from the bloodstream, essentially um, increases the receptors on the liver and takes more cholesterol up. So that's kind of how um, we think it works. So in terms of how much cholesterol you want to get to try to lower your, how much fiber you want to get to try to lower your cholesterol, uh, the portfolio diet, which I, I like um, because it's a diet that was created to specifically um, pull from different plant foods that are known to lower cholesterol and was compared head to head to a low dose statin in the background of a low saturated fat diet and found to lower uh, cholesterol very significantly. So each of the components can lower LDL cholesterol by as much as five to 10%. And so soluble fiber being kind of a big, big part of that. So Eating a lot of plant foods is a great way to get all of your fiber. If you're really trying to count it, the amount of soluble fiber um, in the the trials, uh, the portfolio trials was 20 grams a day. And so I kind of tell my patients aim for around 40 grams of total fiber and you're probably Mm going to have 20 grams of of soluble fiber. Um, So then you're not like really trying to count it. And then really Mm -hmm. emphasizing foods that are, have kind of tend to have more soluble fiber than than not in them. So beans, oats, barley, and then a handful of different fruits and vegetables. So those are great ways to get it, get the soluble fiber in. A natural question that I just thought of is what does Dr. Nicole eat in a day to day to get her soluble fiber? (laughs) Yeah, all my soluble fiber. Um, So I'm actually really boring when it comes to breakfast. It's almost always oatmeal. And I make that with, with ground flax seeds and chia seeds. I top it with soy milk and a nut butter and berries. I think I have that probably five or six times a week. It's really bad, but I love it. Um, if not, you just put in like a Mason jar and just like, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can totally do that. I love, I'll do like a huge batch on the weekends and then, um, and then have it. Although now that my kids love it too, it, it goes much quicker. It's not just for me, but yeah. So I love, I think that's a great way to start and you're hitting, you're getting a ton of fiber in that way. Typically lunch is, is a big old salad with like, you know, 
all the, all the, all the things. And then dinners totally depend, but yeah, I'll do some versions typically of like a tacos or grain bowls or like all that kind of stuff. So that's, that's usually what I I do. Um, And then, you know, snacks, the other great thing to think about. So for cholesterol lowering soy, soy products are great. So getting in a lot of soy products, we think all plant proteins, but what was specifically studied in the portfolio diet was, was the soy. So edamame is great. Tofu, soy milk I use, it's got a lot of protein in it too. A handful of nuts is the other component. So I try to get in my handful of nuts. And then the other component, actually the portfolio diet is plant sterols and sterols, which are, are found in all plant foods, but not in very large quantities. So in the trials, they um, either used a fortified margarine or um, or supplements for that. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, all these different things. It's, you know, what I get from my patients is, doc, I don't know, you know, what to eat. I don't know what to turn to. And it's important to really break this down. And I'm really glad that you've made this a career for yourself because, it's such a pivotal thing to hear, not just a doctor, but also a cardiologist say that, you know, there is link, right? This is what we've studied. This is how to be more proactive. And this is what I do. To me, that is very telling of, you know, what we have in terms of the trajectory of how we can unburden this chronic disease burden that we have that's plaguing our nation, you know, not just heart disease, but, you know, 40% of cancer, you know, chronic, yeah. Uh, renal disease, um, the list goes on, diabetes, asthma, so many different things, brain, Alzheimer's, so many, so many different things that are linking our diet and lifestyle. So, and what I love about this is that it's no longer, we're shifting from the paradigm of a pill for every ill. And when you're adopting more of a whole food plant-based, it's actually touching upon so many different types of conditions because it's a very similar foundational point of how this disease is manifest. So Dr. Nicole, thank you so much. Uh, One last question that I love asking my guests is because this is a podcast all about creating a thriving mindset, can you share with us your top three tips about how you are able to thrive in your own life? Oh, I love that. I would say certainly the eating lots of variety of plant foods every day uh, to fuel my body, uh, trying to get some sort of movement in every day, whether it is a Peloton ride or just a little walk around in the park with one of my kiddos. And then lastly, um, spending lots of quality time with my three kids and my husband. Awesome. Awesome. The Peloton, do you do those uh, workouts where you're traveling to a different country? Um, I like to do the classes cause I like someone to be like, okay, get up to this resistance and this speed and do it now. And I'm like, no. um, no, I, I like to get, I like uh, having a trainer push me, but yeah, my husband loves like the scenic rides and stuff like that. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's a little bit of everything. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And then last but not least, um, how do uh, people find you, you know, where do they go? And is there anything that, um, any parting words that you would like to uh, leave behind to emphasize for our audience listeners? Absolutely. I think parting words, I would say that it is never too early and it's never too late to prevent heart disease. We didn't touch on this, but most we've done studies and even young individuals um, have evidence of the earliest stages of heart disease. And so it's something that is not 
just to try to think about when we're later, but something to start thinking about now, regardless of how old you are. But also it's never too late. And hopefully we made that clear throughout this episode that um, no matter where you are in your journey, your heart health journey, there's always something that you can do. I have lots of people who are also secondary prevention patients. So people who've had heart attacks that are really making big, important changes right now um, to prevent any further issues. So never too early, never too late. Um, in terms of finding me um, on the socials, I'm on both TikTok and Instagram at Nicole Harkin MD. I give lots of heart healthy stuff um, in those places. And then my practice is Whole Heart Cardiology um, and the website's www.wholeheartcardiology.com. Uh, so you can find me there. Awesome. Awesome. You have a great uh, Instagram account. Uh, definitely check out your TikTok. And uh, she has really good blog articles too, if you guys are more of a, uh, you like to read. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, thank you, Dr. Nicole, for spending the time. Um, I think uh, it was such a great, uh, comprehensive, you know, uh, review of everything and updates uh, with all things, you know, heart disease and heart health uh, related. So guys, um, Thank you so much for watching another episode of Thrive Buys Podcast. Um, if you like this, um, please like, share, and subscribe. And if you felt like this was a benefit for someone else, um, please let them know as well. And until next time, please say goodbye to Dr. Nicole. Thank you. <laughs> hey, guys. We hope you enjoy that episode. If you like that, please like, comment, and subscribe. And uh, please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, and anywhere that you listen to your podcasts. And if you felt that this was a benefit for someone else, please let them know. And also remember that the first five seasons, 150 episodes now can be seen and heard on our new The Chef Doc app. And don't forget to give us a five-star rating and we greatly appreciate it. So, and we'll see you on the next one. 